Friends, before we begin, let me invite you to keep up with all the Tracks for the Journey resources by subscribing to the Tracks Express newsletter. Once a week, I send a wide range of helps for well-being directly to your inbox. The Express has inspiration and insights for spirituality, relationships, ecology, emotional health, and yes, recipes for good food. The easiest way to subscribe is on my website, www.tracksforthejourney.com. Thanks for listening today. I remember the first time I saw a dead person. I awakened to answer the phone and heard the voice of an older woman, a member of my small rural church in Oklahoma. Pastor, he's dead. John's dead. Come help me, was her cry on the phone. Of course, I hurried through the dark streets to her house. The man lay in the bed, pale, cold, and still. She explained he had gone to bed not feeling well, and when she checked on him sometime later, he didn't respond. Dead, the spirit of his life departed. He now lay quiet as in sleep, but silent. As we waited for the police and mortuary workers to arrive, I formed a circle of prayer with the stunned widow and the deceased. One of my hands touched her warm, moist flesh, while the other hand touched cold and immobile skin. My prayer thanked God for his life and prayed for the comfort of the widow and talked of the promise of eternal life. An hour later, the body left the house with the coroner. But one might wonder, where was John now? Welcome to the Tracks for the Journey podcast. I'm Larry Payne, your host. Tracks for the Journey is all about building your well-being with insights from progressive Christian spirituality, psychology, and history. Today, we walk the path of all mortal beings to seek a way to better understand death and the afterlife. The reality of death, the heartache of grief, and the mystery of the afterlife have puzzled humankind since the species began. Scientists believe the oldest art depicts such questions. Across the world, ancient caves contain art that's believed to be around 40,000 years old, the oldest human art. Many of these depict a hybrid human-animal creature who seems to hold the power of life and death. Humans of all ages seem to wonder about these questions of, ex of existence. As Professor Risa Aslan writes in his book, God, A Human History, undeniable is the religious belief is so widespread that it must be considered an elemental part of the human experience. We are homo-religious in our existential striving towards transcendence, toward that which lies beyond the manifest world. Aslan is certainly on to something. All human beings seem to wonder about their meaning, their purpose, and what happens after death. The Hebrew Bible 
composed between 1000 and 400 BCE, describes a belief in Sheol, the world of shadows, where all the dead exist, neither rewarded or punished, held in an undead state of separation from God and life. How oppressive was the day-by-day burden of death that must have been so common in the ancient world when the average life expectancy was less than 35 years. Death must have been an everyday experience, and so must the curiosity of what happens to that spirit and soul. My questions of John's destiny that cold night in the little Oklahoma town were echoes from the dawn of history. In this pandemic, millions of families have felt grief in a traumatic reality. But what is grief? We use the word grief to name the complex of emotions we feel when a loss occurs. In the immediate days after loss, physical sensations sweep across our body, provoking things like muscle weakness, shortness of breath, tightening in the chest, and a hollowness in our stomach. Then we begin to think differently, maybe not believing that this is real or being so confused that we can't remember even simple things. We start interpreting ourself differently, feeling anger or guilt, loneliness, sadness, or just numbness. Our behaviors change as we have no appetite, withdraw from others, or lash out with rage. It may be a comfort to know that Jesus experienced the darkness of this kind of grief. The scriptures described how Jesus was troubled standing at the grave of his friend Lazarus conveys a physical shuddering of anger and anguish and sorrow as Jesus sobbed in grief with his friends. As I left the new widow that night long ago, all of this and more was settling on her mind. And I know most of you have had experiences like this, too. I've walked that path. The shadow of loss and grief comes to every human heart. In this episode, I want to share some ways to walk on this path of grief. Welcome back to our episode today as we talk about grief and the afterlife. I know it's not a pleasant subject, but it's one that is so common, especially in the year that we have just experienced. Does what we believe about the afterlife affect how we grieve? Of course it does. Psychology is unanimous in teaching that our thought patterns about any issue shape the way we feel and behave. In the case of bereavement, should I believe that there's no existence after death, then I may feel a deep pang of regret that I had not expressed more love to my mother when she was alive. Should I believe that my brother will be punished in hell for eternity since he did not make an explicit profession of faith in Jesus, then I may feel angry at God for such injustice. 
strongly held beliefs do produce an existential crisis when we stand at the edge of this great question. Going back in history, we learn that by the first century, Judaism had changed views of the afterlife from that idea of Sheol. The majority in Jesus' day believed the faithful would be resurrected from death to live forever with God. Jesus taught the reality of a vital spiritual existence after death, even promising to the thief that hung beside him on another cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise described a new Garden of Eden, recreated in the heavens for the righteous people. Years later, the Apostle Paul preached that a believer who died was present with the Lord in his words from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. In another writing, Paul acknowledged this spiritual truth should make a great impact on the grief experience. As he wrote to the Christians in the Greek city of Thessalonica, he said, We do not want you to be uninformed about those who sleep in death so that you do not grieve like the rest of mankind who have no hope. For we believe that Jesus died and rose again, and we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. The apostle offers comfort to those who believe by asserting that the afterlife will be blessed through the resurrected Savior, Jesus. These believers had experienced a new spiritual meaning by following the way of Christ. Therefore, they could expect with certainty God would provide a blessed life after death. Across the many centuries since that time, Christian theology has used these fundamental beliefs to give millions the courage to face death with peace and hope. As I sat through the funeral of my mother, the vocalist sang, Because he lives, I can face tomorrow. Those words in its familiar melody gave me a great deal of comfort. I knew there was hope, and it was based on this wonderful promise from the Bible. I believe we should be honest, though, that such peace after the death of a loved one does not come easily. After the acute phase of grief that I described earlier, comes a long process of adjusting to life in the absence of that beloved person. This is the reality of the empty boots at a military funeral or the empty chair at the Thanksgiving table. The strong arms or the bright smile of that friend is gone. Our memories are the only place we can find to share what once was a vital presence. The work of Dr. David Kessler provides guidance for our work of grieving. As I attended his seminar entitled Finding Meaning, the Sixth Stage of Grief, I came away with some new ways of thinking about this profound task of readjustment. For many years, the various stages of grief have been in the public thinking. And pervading those phases about the grieving process is the search for meaning. Kessler suggests we are working on two very fundamental questions. One is, who am I without him? And the second is, what is my new relationship with him? 
Let's look at those together. The first question is focused on the absence of our loved one. Who am I without him? Financially? Socially? Sexually? Spiritually? Part of our identity was bound up with that deceased person. Now the context of that life is gone. It may be that I was a husband and now I'm a widower. Or it may be that I had a secure income from my husband, but now there's no money coming in. In the work of grief, we must come up with answers for our new identity, status, context, and future. I read of a middle-aged widow who faced this kind of question after her husband's sudden death. He had done all the financial work for the couple. She was an educational professional and had a steady income, but struggled for months with understanding what to do with the investments, the bills, the property. Discovering all that he had done and what he had forgotten to do, she felt like he was, she was thrown into a swirling sea of confusion with her hands tied by that very grief. The second question is, what is my new relationship to my loved one? This is a question of meaning. The bereaved is forced to adjust to the reality of a different connection, one of memories and unfilled plans or holidays without the hugs that meant so much. The loved one is absent from active interaction, but so very present as a dynamic emotional presence. We ask questions like, what would she think if I remarried? Or parents may say, Zeke was holding this stuffed animal when he died, so what should I do with it? The widow I mentioned a moment ago was faced with a large garage her husband had filled with his hobbies, tools, and equipment for some projects that would now never be done. Weeks after his death, she opened the door for the first time and collapsed in tears with the memories and overwhelming work that lay ahead. She felt angry at having so much to do and divided on what he might want to do with it all. Her relationship to him was overcome with the relationship of these things of his. How could she now define the new relationship to this departed presence? I'd like to share with you some very exciting news about the Tracks for the Journey podcast. I'm expanding the outreach of the podcast by publishing a Kindle ebook entitled Tracks for the Journey 2020. In this ebook, you'll be able to read the 16 episodes that aired during the year 2020. These episodes have been edited some and some additional material added. They've been made easier to read. At the end of the book is a page citing all the different resources that I used. These essays cover the broad range of everything we talked about during 2020. One episode, Love, God, and You, talked about the uncontrolling love of God and its power to transform our lives. There were a couple of episodes about resiliency and bouncing back from our troubles. There were three episodes about the serenity prayer and what it can mean for our lives. There was one about the Bible and your health. 
and then another about stress, something we certainly all need to learn about. There was the one entitled The Blue Marble in Crisis, which dealt with the climate change issue. It also contains the most popular episode from 2020, entitled The Matter of Black Lives, in which we talked about the issues of racism and justice and what we can do to respond. It's my hope that you'll go to the Amazon Kindle store and buy a copy of this ebook. It'll download to your device using the Kindle app, and you can enjoy reflecting, thinking, and even commenting on these experiences. It's only $1.99. So I hope today that you'll consider your well-being by going back to read the essays of Tracks for the Journey 2020. Before we finish today, I want to come back to the subject of the afterlife. What do you believe happens after we die? Americans as a whole hold a broad belief in the path to a happy afterlife. A poll by the Pew Organization tallied that 72% of Americans believe in heaven and 66% believe that heaven can be attained through many spiritual traditions. It's a part of our American cultural tradition to assure the grieving person that the loved one is in a better place. This universal hope finds a clear voice in the scripture. Hearing again from the Apostle Paul in the book of Ephesians, he makes plain God intends a complete redemption for all persons, as the scriptures say, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. The love, mercy, and creative power of God leads to the confidence that the work of God has extended to billions who never knew the name of a specific God named Yahweh in the Hebrew Bible or Jesus in the New Testament. The response God has always sought is not assent to a set of doctrines or a once-in-a-lifetime ritual at a certain point during our brief earthly years. Instead, God seeks a relational and transformational response to his offer of unrelenting love and justice. Many believe this response is not completed in our lifetime, holding that in the afterlife God continues to work in each human being, forming and transforming our pitiful and limited faith. In theology, this is called sanctification. It means God labors to bring our lives to full fellowship through the totality of our existence. A passage in 1 Corinthians states that God will do a testing and redeeming work after death. It says, Their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss and yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping through the flames. To me, this seems a clear teaching that all humans who have ever lived, perhaps 110 billion of us, through the total existence of Homo sapiens, will ultimately be shepherded into the everlasting kingdom. Jesus declared, 
When I am lifted up from the earth, I will draw all people to myself. I think he really meant that. It gives us great hope as we stand behind those who grieve or beside the graveside of someone we loved. Encouraged by such convictions, our grief response can make a way towards healing. We process the pain by reflecting and talking and praying and surrendering the old shape of our lives. We begin to tell a new story about our identity and relationship in the absence of that loved one. We discover and hold to the good memories, the legacy, and the honor granted in the life we shared. Across many days and nights, the Spirit of God does a work of mercy to bring comfort and hope to our grieving spirits. The widow that I spoke of with the large workshop and huge pain worked diligently on her broken heart. She found support in wise friends about money management. She enlisted the adult children to work with her in the barn, offering items to nonprofits, keeping some sentimental things, and bonding with the kids in this sacred task of honoring their father. The pain diminished as the seasons rolled on. Dr. Kessler offers a thought I'd like to leave with you. He taught in that seminar, We heal from grief when we remember the loved one with more loved than pain. We build love around the pain and make it a part of our love. May your grief be building a new life with even more love. And may you continue on your journey to well-being. Thank you for sharing this episode of Tracks for the Journey. I'm Larry Payne, your host, and I invite you to join me on the Tracks for the Journey Facebook page. You can also email me at trackspodcast at mail.com. I would enjoy hearing your comments or ideas about the subjects you would enjoy discussing or how we can do a better job in pushing each other towards well-being. Tracks for the Journey is recorded at the Bright Star Studio, all rights reserved. Original music by Jan Bjork through Epidemic Music. Scripture is from the NIV. I hope you'll keep on tracks for your well-being.